I don't know who needs to hear this, but stop waiting on your healing to magically show up. Start doing something about it. Start doing something that's gonna change how you feel so you can actually experience life at its fullest again. Hi, I'm Kevin from A Tiny Revolution, and outside of podcasting, I'm a spiritual coach. I help folks move through their deconstruction journeys into what I call a living practice, and I wanna invite you into that process as well. And with that, I invite you to the Living Practice Summer School, starting May 13th. It's a nine-week program where we're going to go through the nuts and bolts of how to recover from your spiritual trauma by reclaiming your spiritual authority. We're gonna do this through diving into meditative practices, somatic experience, inspired text, and embodied movement workshops. If you've been wondering where to turn or what to do post-deconstruction or how to, you know, maybe finally find some solid ground outside of strict Christianity, this is probably for you. The Living Practice Summer School kicks off May 13th, and you can get all the details and sign up at thekevingarcia.com slash summer school. You are listening to an irreverent media podcast. Go to irreverent.fm in your web browser to find more dope-ass podcasts like this. Now on to the show. Hi, friends, and welcome back to A Tiny Revolution, a podcast about ordinary folks living revolutionary lives. I love you. This is Kevin. I'm back uh, once again in your ears. I hope that you are happy to be here like I am because it's been a mad couple of weeks for me, at least. It's been really, really hard. So uh, if I'm ever not on my schedule, if I'm not ever coming out, it's because something's going down in my personal life, and I opt for the belief that we should not hustle. We should not push ourselves more than we have to because at the end of the day, uh, it's not worth the stress. It's not worth me getting bent out of shape. And so I've just allowed myself to be an imperfect content creator. I've allowed myself to be inconsistent because what else am I going to do? So I just wanna let you know out there, uh, if you're someone who struggles with consistency because you live in a traumatizing world that makes it tiresome, to continue to produce things. I just want to let you know it is okay. And I'm saying that mostly for myself because I am so tired right now of what's going on. So just know that you're not alone out there. Please take a deep breath with me and then let's dive into today. Now I want to talk to you about my friend who's on the podcast today, Shannon T.L. Kearns. He's a transgender man who believes in the transformative power of story. An ordained priest, a playwright, a theologian, and a writer, all of his work revolves around making meaning through story. He's the co-founder of Queer Theology and the author of the book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. That was published by Erdman's Books. He's the founder and artistic director of Uprising Theater Company in Minneapolis, the recipient of the Playwright Center Jerome Fellowship in 2020 and 2021, and, if we can keep going, the Lambda Literary Fellow for 2019 and in 2022. And a Finnovation Fellow. Like, I can keep going on for all these things. His work at QueerTheology.com, alongside his co-founder Brian G. Murphy, has reached more than a million people all over the world through videos, articles, online courses, and community. Father Shannon is truly just an incredible soul, and you're going to hear that in the conversation as we talk about the book, and reclaiming space and being trans in a world that is, frankly, it's hard to be queer and trans right now, right? 
So, with that, please enjoy this conversation with my internet friend, Shannon T.L. Kearns. Yeah, so the, the Cliff Notes version I always give is I uh, was raised a fundamentalist evangelical who grew up to become the first openly transgender man ordained to the old Catholic priesthood. Um, and that's usually enough to like <laughs> give Either them get them excited or get them to be like, I'm out of here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and then if, if the conversation is still going, I also tell folks that I'm a playwright and a theologian and a writer um, and that really all of my work revolves around making meaning through stories mm, brilliant and then they say that's cool i'm an accountant like you know <laughs> right yes <laughs> what have you worked on recently before we start talking about your book what have you worked on recently that you really loved like a creative project oh that's a great question um right now i am in the midst of revising a television pilot script that's about a trans priest um, who gets sent to a rural community. And so it, it's really examining, like, how do we be in community with people we don't agree with? And how does mm -hmm. change happen? And is there any hope for the church <laughs> in particular? Um, oh, it's what a, a question. It's been a really fun project to work on. Yeah. I, that is a question I have. And this is actually, I saw it, I saw it on a TikTok, which, of course, like, that's how every conversation starting these days isn't it um but uh, it was another podcast and someone was saying like which just like can the church be saved you know or, or like you know can christianity be saved and someone was uh basically saying like until they don't have power you know it won't work and then the other person says like i think until it's the minority like it won't be an effective tool for anything until it becomes completely devoid of its tie to the state um yeah. But for like, you know, I guess, you know, starting off with like a little heavy, I'm just like, from where you're sitting, like, like Western Christianity, is it, is it, is it salvageable? Because like, I'm at a place where like, I have a hard time calling myself a Christian. And I always wonder why do other people call themselves Christian in any regard? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think this is such a, it's a, such an important question. It's a tricky question. It's a complicated question. Um, and I say that not to dodge it, but because it's oh like, yeah, it just, it's it's nuanced things, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I and I say me, it not as a as a combative question either. I really am yeah, yeah. curious. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, there's a difference between can Christianity be saved and can the church be saved? Mm, um, definitely, because the the church that I'm seeing in you know in white America, which is like where I'm residing currently, is like not. I don't, I don't think is salvageable, mostly because they're not actually interested in being saved, right? They're interested Ooh, ding, in ding, ding. tradition and in holding up this tradition, which is like not even tradition, right? It's, it's the 1940s. <laughs> so, it's, I mean, that's the thing that is so baffling to me. It's like, this isn't even ancient. This is like World War II. Um, I don't know <laughs> exactly. what's so compelling about it. But I do think that there is, I mean, the reason that I still call myself a Christian is because I find that there's something so compelling in the Jesus story yeah. that I can't shake. Um, and that as someone who is both, who holds both marginalized identities and privileged identities, 
mm-hmm. there is a nuance in the Jesus story that I think both gives me hope and also convicts me. And it's that combination that I really need mm-hmm. in my life. Um, and also, I think that like as someone who grew up steeped in fundamentalist evangelicalism, like I can't escape Christianity if I tried. Like right. I speak in Christian metaphor still by same. accident. Um, and so like for me, the the best way to deal with that was to go as deeply into the tradition as I could mm-hmm. and to really spend time reclaiming it and making it healthy and whole. Um, and I also realized that like that is not what everyone needs to do. Like that is what worked mm-hmm. for me. Um, I think a lot of our work at Grithology.com is helping people to leave well um, and to, mm. to say like, listen, I I can't be in this tradition. It's caused too much trauma, too much harm. Fantastic. Then let's help you leave it completely so that you can find the tradition and the spiritual practices that are actually life-giving for you. Yes. Um, This middle ground of like, I'm, I don't want it anymore. And yet I can't leave it alone. Like that's the unhealthy space that I think a, a lot of folks get stuck in. Ooh, that, that's something I think is, so interesting because it's like that's where i guess like you're all out here making content and whatnot but like that's where a lot of people will get like accused of it's just like oh like for someone who doesn't like christianity you seem pretty obsessed with it um and i think in some ways like at least for me like i've started like my coming out journey on the blogosphere like i started talking about like all that for me because i was you know a child of the internet that was where i processed a lot of my stuff um and i wonder for myself like when you said like rather than like either walk away from it or go as deeply into it in some ways that's what i feel like has happened for my own personal devotion devotion to the person of jesus like it's a very mystical like teacher student relationship like i'm reading um autobiography of a yogi and the way that um, the author talks about his devotion to his guru feels so similar in what I feel. Anyways, yeah, it's it's so interesting. And it makes me wonder, I'm just like, so does that, does that point right there of me just being connected to Jesus in that way, does that make me a Christian? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know, right? I think that, like, for me, it's always like, how do you want to define yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of, I think that we can point to behaviors that are definitely not Christ-like and Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, but I I get cautious and and a little nervous about the, like, who gets to call themselves a Christian game because right. it's so often used against queer and trans folks. Mm-hmm. Um while also being able to like point to behavior and be like i don't know i don't see that in the bible anywhere so yeah that's the thing too is like we like is that's what like because it's like there's so quote unquote so many ways to be christian i'm just like donald trump is apparently a christian that's what that's what he say you know lauren bobert is apparently a christian allegedly allegedly anyways i i just that's my that's in my own own shit. So let, let me pivot to you because I do want to talk about you because I talk about myself way too often. Can I ask about what 
what is old Catholicism? What is like, where, who does she come from? Where's she at? Why, why has no one ever heard of her? (laughs) Yes. So uh, the old Catholic church is an independent progressive Catholic group, not in communion with Rome uh, that ordains women, LGBTQ folks and folks who are married, partnered and divorced. It split off of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1700s. Um, so this is Whoa. not new. Yeah, like it, there is a long and storied history. Um, lots of folks think that this is some, you know, kind of upstart, mm-hmm. random Catholic group. It's not. It's very old. Um, it started in Utrecht in the Netherlands. The Wikipedia article about it is actually really good. <laughs> so like, if you want to <laughs> deep dive into the weird church politics of it all wikipedia article but um basically uh, the it started in the u.s about 200 years ago um some rogue bishops from europe came over and started ordaining people which i i kind of find fascinating and lovely and so priests in the old catholic tradition um consider themselves in apostolic succession um for those for whom that is important right Um, and that's a that's a huge claim yeah it's a big claim um, and, and in the United States, it's a little bit wonky because um, because of how it came here, some of the ties to the official old Catholic Church in Utrecht are fuzzy. Um, and so that's why most people haven't heard of it in the United States, because it's not well organized. Um, <laughs> God bless the folks. They they don't many of them don't know their way around the interwebs. <laughs> and so, you know, there's lots of um, old Catholic church websites with auto playing midi files of hymns so you can imagine praise god i you feel so holy when you get on that oh that's amazing um so yeah and so but there are a lot of there are a lot of communities many communities are very small you know usually meeting in other people's spaces or in people's houses um there are a couple of groups that have their own buildings that have grown uh, and have enough um finances and support to have their own space uh, but that's that's pretty rare hmm. holy crap an entire denomination an entire church that says yeah rome wasn't it for us we we yeah. said bye yeah that's yeah. hot and so you said they ordain women and marry divorced people like go down that list again who they ordain yeah, married uh, women, um, people who are married, partnered, and divorced, and LGBTQ plus people. So basically, so you can be a married person and you can yes. be a married person and be a priest. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. See now, yes. now yeah. I need to like. I'm like, okay, I have to go. I got to go <laughs> research again. Yeah. Yeah, and there are. I will say this caveat: there are some um, folks who call themselves old Catholic in the United States who are much more conservative and so wouldn't ordain women or don't support queer folks so like you do need to kind of do your research before wandering to an old catholic church um and some of that is like i think some folks that are roman catholic but like really still want the latin mass and whatever are calling themselves old catholic so there's some stuff with language that is confusing so yes do Mm -hmm. your homework uh before being like, oh, this church is going to welcome me because it might not. Mm-hmm. Oof. Okay. Always be discerning. Always check the website. Exactly. Yes. Yes. See, see what the forward-facing information is. And if it's not clear, don't do it. Yeah. It's clear. Um, if it's not clear, it's clear. 
Yeah, that oh, that's the thing. Like if you don't need to go to get coffee with them to find out. No. That's the no, no. pro tip. How many cups of coffee does it take <laughs> to change a pastor's mind about homosexuality? The answer is organizing. Yes. Exactly. This is like how many cups of coffee? Organizing. Yeah, yeah. That no coffee. Anyways. Um your book in the margin uh, in the margins, subtitle, which is A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. Also, I love this cover design because it's it's you. It's you. It's the big, it's the big red glasses. It's the collar. Um, to give us a little rundown. You know, what's, what's this book about? It's obviously about Scripture, but when you're telling people about it, what do you say? Yeah, it's kind of a hybrid book in that half of it is memoir uh, and half of it is a retelling of Bible stories through a trans perspective. So it's really a book that weaves my story together with scripture stories and invites the reader, the audience um, to to encounter their own story, hopefully in a new way. And so it's not just for trans folks. It's for Mm -hmm. all people to really think about how reading through a trans lens might expand their reading of scripture and might help them uncover new things about their own faith and their lives and their Mm -hmm. lives. Yeah. I think for a lot of, I mean, it's an obvious trope that like us queer folk, like approaching things like the Bible or any kind of scripture can be so tough because of how it was used against us. Um, When you're, when you're first, I guess it's like, this is an advice question. When, when I'm talking to folks about reapproaching scripture, I try to, or if, if they want that, I always tell them, I'm like, if you need to, it's okay if you need to set it down for a minute and just be away yeah. from it. And then when you're ready to pick it back up, you have to do so with the understanding that uh, you don't have, A, <clears throat> you don't have to believe anything you read. And two, uh, you, you can evaluate for yourself what is helpful. Like you can evaluate for yourself and that, and let that be the marker of it. And for me, like when I sit in a place of peace, when I finally sat myself down and got myself centered and finally am okay with who I am, knowing that God loves me no matter what, I can pick up any scripture. I can pick up any book and not be shaken by what I read, even if it is some kind of homophobic rendering or passage, because I recognize what is true like, you know, what, what's true is, is what is helpful. And like, I don't have to believe what some white guy, what some white cisgender straight pastor has said about human sexuality when they have no experience. So when you're, when you're talking with people like through their journey of trying to reclaim scripture, how do you, how do you help them approach that? What do you tell them to do? Yeah. I mean, I think that your advice of, of walking away from it for a while is important. Um, there was a time when I just needed distance before I could reapproach. And I think it's okay to take that distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing that really helped me is to not read the Bible, but to read books about the Bible by yes. actual scholars. Um, and so like reading folks like Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crisson and their books um, that they've written together, reading Borg's reading the Bible again for the first time, reading Rob Bell's What is the Bible? Such um, a good one. Yeah. Those were all so helpful for me so that when I went back into scripture, I had a whole new way of reading it. I, I think that just time off wouldn't have actually been effective for me because 
I mm. knew the Bible so well, and I knew the interpretation that I had been taught so well that had I picked it up again, even with time off, I would have just gone right back to reading it the way that I always had. Um, which, mm. when I when I say this, I say this with a lot of love, but like, no no scholar worth their salt reads the Bible like evangelicals read the Bible. Like, it, it is not... <laughs> It's not say. I mean, tell works. the truth and shame the devil. That's what I'm saying. And so, like, you have to, in order to read the Bible well, you actually have to do some work to understand how the Bible was written, mm-hmm. um, how it, how these books, th- this library of books that is the Bible, is in conversation with one another. Um, that that all of that you have to learn some of the historical and political context. Like, it's not as easy as simply like opening it up, pointing to a passage and being like, what does this have to say for my day? Um, yeah, what does this have to do with my mod- modern existence right now? Yeah. You would be surprised, maybe not as much as you think. <laughs> yeah, and often, you know, I think often as white evangelicals in America, we were taught to read the Bible as if we were always the heroes. And like, honestly, often we're the villains. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that learning that reframe um, which isn't to say that it's like condemning of sexuality and, and gender identity, right? right? There there are other ways to be villains that have nothing to do with your intrinsic yeah. goodness. Like right? charging interest <laughs> on loans. I'm looking at you, exactly. government. Yeah, like, yeah. The, the ways that we are, you know, a part of systems of oppression that we were born into, but that we still have to grapple with and deal with and um, come to terms with. Mm-hmm. What was the most helpful reframe for you um, as a trans man, as you were like working through, you know, is this, I, I don't know for you, like I had, I had, when I was first working through my shit, I had to come to like a biblical understanding from a very specific kind of worldview and start working on reframing stuff so that I could, so that I could start to feel okay. What was like the, the reframe for you that really helped click things into place that allowed you to start really getting free? Yeah, I mean, I think it was like learning the history, the his, the historical and political context of the texts. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that, you know, I did when I, so I had, you know, multiple coming comings out, of, came out first as a lesbian because I didn't have language around gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that phase, I went through a period of time where I was like, I can be a good evangelical, just gay, um, which was never very satisfying to me or to anyone in my life. <laughs> I think I also went through that same period of like, I have to come up with a quote unquote biblical defense for my sexuality, which I both did, but also like, again, wasn't very fulfilling. And I think it's because it was still, it was still kind of anchored in ceding all of the control and the ground to the ways that evangelicals read scripture. Mm-hmm. And so then mm-hmm. when I learned that, actually that's not how like any faithful scholar reads scripture that was i think the moment when i was like oh oh i can let all of that go and i can actually engage with scripture in a in a new way in a different way that then it became much healthier and then it also became a text that i could approach on its own terms, right? Like I didn't have to use it as anything. I, I didn't have to use it to defend myself. Yes, yes, I didn't yes. have to use it to convince myself that I was right. I could just be with the text. And mm-hmm. that's when things started to unlock for me because then I could 
see my own story reflected. I could encounter um, moments of conviction that didn't like send me into a shame spiral, right? But instead called me and invited me into being a part of something better and bigger. Um, and that that shift, I think, is what started me on a journey, both of like queering scripture, but also of having a healthy relationship with it. Yeah, God, ding dong. The part about like when you were ta- when you were saying realizing that you had your own authority, that you didn't have to cede ground to anybody, and you didn't have to assent to all these other ideals that you don't believe in, and that yeah. really kind of. I think that was that was for me too is like I was also really trying to be the good gay Christian where like you know didn't drink didn't smoke didn't you know go out and party wasn't having you know all kinds of sex with no like I was a you know good except for the fact that I was queer or I was gay and I think when you said it was not satisfying yeah I think too often like satisfaction is not something that evangelicals and post evangelicals look for because life is not about satisfaction, but about, uh, the service and the suffering. And it's about really making your, (laughs) I don't want to say making yourself miserable, but like, I think like we, we evangelicals mistake like undue suffering for sanctification. Yeah, for sure. How did you learn to find more pleasure in your life and just kind of like let that be the weight? How did you find more pleasure in your life? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I I think when I stopped believing that anything could send me to hell, um, suddenly life became a lot more pleasurable. (laughs) It's like nothing, nothing, neither height nor depth, angels nor demons powers yeah. nor principalities come on somebody and i th- and i think that like the theological right response would be when i started seeing jesus's life as about the resurrection not about the cross um because i think like for me that's why evangelicals live in that space of suffering because they've put all of the emphasis on the cross um and if you read the text like the cross is a is a footnote, right? It's the resurrection that actually matters, that actually changed things. Um, and it's this hope of, of new creation and, um, and, and not just a hope that like it will happen someday, but that it can happen now and that we can be a part of it. And that reframe for me, I think invited me into saying, okay, well then what, how, how can I best serve? What does a restored world look like? Um, and I think in the midst of that and like therapy, realizing Come that my um, my suffering, my refusal to desire things, my, you know, staying small didn't actually serve anything. It didn't serve me. It didn't serve other mm-hmm. people. It didn't serve God. Like that, that's not what this is about. Yeah. And I think that then freed me up to be like, okay, well then what do, what do I want to do? What am I good at? How can I, and then how can I use those gifts in service of other people? Right. I, I think it was always like, these are the things that you have to do in order to, you know, win God's favor, but also like be a good Christian. That's like, some of those are not things that I am good at. <laughs> 
so why am I doing things that I'm miserable at? Like, I don't think that God calls us to misery, right? Mm. That I think when Jesus said, I've come that you have an abundant life, that he meant it. And so that, that abundance looks like joy. It looks like pleasure. It looks like mm-hmm. us fully alive, right? Whatever that looks like for each of us. Uh, preach. I mean, I come from Pentecostal land, so like, if I ever sat in a church and you were preaching like that, I'd be like, "Hello, somebody." I, I love this vision because that for like for the shift for me, we were saying that like it shifted from the cross to the resurrection. That reminded me, like, very much growing up, and also like a few years ago, I went home for Christmas, and my uncle is a pastor at like just some kind of independent non-denom semi-baptist backwater whatever god bless them and all they do um but it was christmas eve service and one my mother asked me if i would play the piano and sing like the christmasized version of uh hallelujah and i'm just yeah and Mm -hmm. i said absolutely not and she said why not (laughs) i said i said do you know what the original intention of that song was uh, uh, I'm like, that's right, you don't. I said, so you would know that the, the composer of that song would be mortified. Um, yes. And then uh, the other part of it was, we're talking about Christmas, we were talking about Christmas, and then, and Mary knew that her son was born to die. And I was like, oh, we're, we're, going, we're going for crucifixion on Christmas. We love that. Um, yeah, we, that, we can't even let that baby be born before we got him up on that cross. That's a problem. Absolutely. I mean, like, here's my, I, I saw it like on a fuck again, I saw it on a TikTok. There was like this British woman who's being very sarcastic, talking to different like scholars about Christianity. And she's talking to this like art scholar about religious art. And she said, so we've got pictures of Jesus as a baby and Jesus like dying on the cross, but not uh, dying on the cross as a baby. It feels like a missed opportunity. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I think, sorry, (laughs) Um, going back to the original point and not my rabbit trail, the the focus on the actual lived experience of how Jesus brought the presence of God into everybody's life, like that is what is so incredible to me, is that he really just was like, didn't give a shit who he was. It's just like, do you want it? And then it was there. Like, it, I just, I see him so much now, more now as a teacher and friend and brother and not, uh, and, you know, inspirational, like, hero of the resistance who got executed by the state. Like, I, I, I revere him even more now that I see it not as a sacrifice, but as he martyred. He was martyred. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that, to me, is more admirable in some ways and just like, I'm just going to go let myself get killed. Because <laughs> right. that's how it was always framed to me. It was just like, Jesus yeah. let himself got killed. I'm like, eh. Anyways. There's so many more helpful reframes that we can to get into. What For the book, for In the Margins, what was your favorite story that you included that you reframed for the reader? Mm. If you can pick one, you know, I, I, I think that the joy of this work, right. Is that I've been doing 
theological work and telling retellings for a long time now. Uh, and what I love is that I can still learn new things and I can still be sub- surprised by scripture and I can still be um, newly engaged by a story. And so the, so working with Rahab, um, the story of Rahab in the book, which is not mm-hmm. a story I had worked with before, um, was really fun because it taught me something new and it made me wrestle in a new way. Um, and it made me tell some stories that were like embarrassing about my own life, but also like really grapple with, um, with sex and sexuality and what it is, what it means to be a sexual outsider. Um, so I think that that chapter was probably the most challenging for me as a writer. Uh, and also I think has been my sense is that it's been most challenging for readers. Um, no one has named that explicitly, but when I kind of, poke at them a little bit it seems like it's the sexual outsider piece um that mm. that is most daunting to folks which i appreciate too because i think that's exactly the point um is that it mm. it calls us to reflect on the people that we often ignore or or think are quote-unquote wrong but uh, that are actually the, the folks that have the most to teach us um mm. and so i think that that working with that chapter was was really fun and then in general I told a lot of stories that I just haven't told before um, from my Mm. own life, um, but also from scripture. And so doing that work, being willing to go more deeply than I had in the past was really, um, was really a growing and learning experience. Terrifying, (laughs) but good Mm. in in a good way. Are you the kind of writer who like when you sit down, it's like, like, I get get really angsty. You get really angsty about it. Or does it feel... I don't know for me writing has always felt like a joyful time like I, I loved getting to sit down and like try on ideas and stretch things apart I love the writing process what, what what's your and also do you like it and also what's your process like um I, I like it some days some days I get angsty about it um and it's usually when I'm like not sure where to go next or or I know that a piece isn't where it needs to be, but I don't quite know what it needs, right? That that gap between like, I know this isn't right, but I don't know how to get it to where it is right. That piece um, usually makes me angsty. I will say that, that I, the book was helpful in that I had a really clear deadline of when it was due. And I also had a really clear word count from the publisher of like, you have to turn in this many words by this date. And that really helps me. Uh, if there is a, if there is a deadline with a threat of public shaming on the other hand, I am like all in and that helps my process immensely. <laughs> and so. Will they so publicly really like, shame you? Will they publicly shame you? No, but like knowing that I would disappoint someone like, so I can't set uh, my own deadlines where it's like, oh, you have same. to do it by that means nothing to me someone else has to be holding the the deadline over my head um so that really helped me to know like i have to sit down and write x number of words a day if i'm gonna hit this deadline and that kind of clarity was really really helpful and having an outline before i started of these are the 10 bible stories that i'm gonna tackle that was really helpful so the the book process was less angsty but there were definitely days where i was like i don't I have overtold this story or I have told, 
this story six times in four different ways in three chapters. Um, so the editing oh, process yeah. was, was more painful, but <laughs> the writing that's, was less painful. Yeah, that's, I've never worked with an editor before. Uh, that's not true. I did work with one, like a structure editor, and that process was very nice. Um, and I'm very curious this go around. Uh, I'm working on the second one, and my deadline is January 1. And I'm currently in, in the phase of like, don't edit while you write, don't edit while you write, just, mm. just get it out, just vomit it out so that you can move on. Um, but it's so fun. We're so lucky that we get to write things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It does feel like a real gift to be able to, to share stories with people. Mm -hmm. I also think what's cool, very cool now versus like five years ago um, was I, I came out like seven years ago. Um, it's like relatively short amount of time. I, the, I mean, the first book that came out that was like by a queer Christian that I remember was God and the Gay Christian. And I didn't know of anything by any trans folk. I didn't know anything that was about any, any trans theology. I didn't know about anything by any people of color. Like in, in the past less than 10 years, like it's nowhere, like it's, there's a part of me that's like it, it, within the publishing world, it really sucks that publishers like are still businesses and they have to turn a profit in order to like do the thing. And so it's like, if I'm not a profitable investment, they're not going to look at my work. And I think that discourages so many people from creating a project or going out there and doing something when so there's so many resources that like that people need and so many stories that we need to hear. I don't know. I just, if you're someone out there who's listening to this and you want to write a book, please just write the book, yeah. self publish it and put it out there. Yeah. I don't care if like, that's the thing. Self publishing can be very, very successful. And I also think that like, so like, cause like you, um, you and Brian at queer theology have been bootstrapping it for a long time and like doing it <laughs> on your own. Time. Yeah. Um, I know that we're uh, coming up on time and whatnot. So let I want to like tell me about queer theology, queertheology.com and that entire project. How did it come about? What was it? What's it now? Yeah. So we started um, officially. We started in 2013. So we're coming up on our 10th anniversary um, of it'll be April of next year. And but really it started, um, we kind of count our origin story as Wild Goose 2011, which was the very first Wild Goose Festival, um, which was in a, in a tick infested field in the swelter of North Carolina. Um, and that year, um, every single conversation uh, about gay people and Christianity was led by straight cisgender white people. There were two uh, openly queer presenters. They were both artists. Um, so one was Jennifer Knapp, one was Peterson Toscano. And every single conversation was, is it okay to be gay? And this <sighs> is in 2011. Um, and Brian and I were at that Wild Goose Festival and we were like, fuck this shit. Like, this is bullshit. Like, not only has this conversation been had 
a bajillion times. Not only has this already been decided, not only is all of the information that these people are presenting on these stages, uh, stuff that's been rehashed over and over again since Virginia Mollencott wrote Is the Homosexual My Neighbor in 1979. Y'all, this is Hello. not new. Hello. <laughs> um, we were like, there's also so much goodness here that you are missing out on because you cannot get over this stupid argument. And so as we were just like attenders at the festival, um, we wore legalized trans shirts as a a, um, sign of public witness and just stood around. And all of these people came up to us as like, we just want to talk. We want to it was other queer folks who needed someone visible that they could reach out to. It was parents whose kids had just come out as trans. It's pastors, right? And we're having all of these really intense conversations, but they're not about like, is it okay to be gay? It's about here's how you can actively support your kids. Um, Mm -hmm. Here's how like queer readings of scripture will change your life. And we saw more movement happening on the Mm -hmm. sidelines than we did coming from the main stages. And so that really inspired both of us to be can like... I just say, can, can I just say, I saw more movement on the sidelines yep. than I did on the main stage. And if that is not a picture of what happens in institutionalized churches who are not willing to just acknowledge what is already happening and what is already yep. in front of them, is that we're over here on the sidelines having to create our own things carving out our own communities and then they're like oh my god you guys are thriving it's like yeah no thanks to you or yeah. all the money that you siphon off from people who actually need it yeah yeah <sighs> yeah yeah and so we were both like okay well, there ha- we have to do something better we're so sick of this conversation um and even like the christian queer orgs that e- not queer the christian gay orgs that existed at that time were also focused on this conversation right side a versus side b is it okay to be gay can i have gay sex and we were like okay great <laughs> so we were like okay we want to start something that takes yes of course it's okay to be gay and have gay sex as the starting point um not as the finish line like we're not trying to get you to acceptance oh, we're taking God. acceptance as the starter as the given yeah. And that we not we not only that, but like we believe that queer and trans readings of scripture and queer and trans ways of forming community are life giving um, and that God is there, that it's we don't need to be let into the churches, that the churches need to be called out to where God already is and God is mm-hmm. already amongst us and in this work. Um, and so we started this website to basically be a, a resource hub to combine head and heart to make academic queer theology accessible to folks that don't read academic texts. Because listen, I love me some Marcella Althus Reed, but mm-hmm. ain't no one gonna read her on the, on the... <laughs> She's brilliant. It's... She's liberating. And if you don't have, you ain't got the training. If you don't have your training wheels. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you gotta, you gotta read her like 16 times to get a a fraction of it and so we thought like there needs to be a way to make this more accessible um and we were also you know inspired by the beauty of evangelicalism good websites good graphics good you know design that we were like we can we can create something that is inviting to people um and that moves the the conversation in a new way so we started with a with a a course on how to read the bible queerly on google hangouts and it was like 
you could have, I think, 10 people at the time. So it was like, well, Brian and I are two, so we're going to get eight other folks. And we did that and it went well. We started the podcast um, pretty much right after that. And that's been going weekly ever since. So we're on, I don't know, year nine of the podcast every week, something like that. Year which is nine just, of a podcast? Yeah. Like, it is truly incredible. Like, like you're like, people that they don't realize queer theology is the OG. We've been around for a long time. <laughs> and we, we, what makes us laugh is that, you know, we started this podcast before seasons were a thing and we're kind of kicking ourselves because we're like if we had just held out (laughs) a little longer we could have done some seasons and taken some breaks (laughs) when i tell you i'm in the same fucking boat because i started mine five years ago and this is like episode like 184 and like i've just taken time off here and there just because i've needed to um but god the idea of a season just sounds so sexy you know right (laughs) is it possible we just stop now Everything before this, season one. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then we'll go we into we are mixing we're mixing it up in different ways now, which is allowing us to take some breaks, uh, which is helpful. But yeah, and it's and it's I think in in some ways we feel like we've been doing this work for forever, and in some ways we feel like we're just getting started, um, mm. and and we're excited about where the future is is going and wh- and where we can continue to push the conversation um, and and create space for people to have these conversations and to to find wholeness Mm. may it be lord in our time hallelujah yes indeed Uh, i always end my conversations asking five questions that are semi-rapid fire but it's just called just one thing it has to do with they all correspond with your hand (laughs) which anyways but the fingers on your hand that sounded weird anyways (laughs) <laughs> first question are you ready father shannon kearns for i'm ready one thing uh what's one thing you like about yourself i like that i'm trans fuck yeah me too i like that about you a lot <laughs> what's one thing you're super duper proud of or just regular proud of uh the work we've done with queertheology.com for sure mm. what's one thing that really pisses you off or is like a pet peeve it can be very like deep or or petty. Doesn't matter. Uh, the ways the ways evangelicals read the Bible. One hundred. What is one thing you're super committed to? Writing. Mm. And what is one thing that you would like to do before you die? Write for television, preferably Ooh. my own show. <gasps> but I would take writing. I, I, I want to do all of it, but at someday the dream is to oh, do my own show. I think that would be so fun. I, I have like, I think that'd be fun to write for, for television. So like, I have like this thing, like, like a web series of some kind. I'm like, I want to do a web series called Adam and Stevie about two evangelicals <laughs> where it's like, Adam's a gay guy. Stevie is uh, like, turns out later on trans mask non-binary later on in the season starts off as like Steffi but she turns into Stevie later Um, anyways we're gonna have a great time can't wait to write for television it's gonna be perfect Um, Father Shannon where can a people find your book and also where can they find yourself on the internet your work connect with you give you money etc 
yeah, so the book can be purchased wherever. Um, I always advocate for independent stores, so like bookstore, bookshop.org, um, which will support indie bookstores, but you can buy it at the big, big box places if you need to. Um, I am everywhere on the interwebs at Shannon T.L. Kearns, um, including on TikTok, but as a, I don't know, I don't know if I'm an elder millennial or a young Gen Xer or whatever, all that to say, I'm not very good at the TikToks. Um, Instagram is like <laughs> is where I really thrive. But you can find me on all of the social medias. And then obviously at QueerTheology.com. And we're at either Queer Theology or Q Theology on all of the socials. Which is not to be confused with QAnon Theology, which is a different account. Right. Very different. <laughs> what a way to end. We are not there. We are not. We're not that. Anyways. <laughs> Thank you. This was a a, a treat and a dream. I like you so much, and thank you for being here. That was my conversation with Father Shannon T.L. Kearns. You can find his work across the internet at shannontlkearns.com and at uh, shannontlkearns on Instagram. So please go follow him all over the place. And please be sure to pick up the book In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture, available all the places. I loved this conversation. We had it a while back, so it was so refreshing to revisit. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Father Shannon. You're such a wonderful human. And this was an incredibly delicious conversation for me. So I hope it was for you and for all the people who are listening. Okay, let's wrap it up. Let's do the... The, the credits. Let's do the usual announcements. If you liked the show, please go ahead and do me a favor. Subscribe. Leave us a rating on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us uh, with reaching other people. If this conversation was good for you, share it on your social media because that's also super helpful. There's a way to do that right in the app wherever you are listening. Just click the share button and share it to your stories. Share it to your Twitter. Share it to your Facebook. Please, 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 please. please. I love you so much. Um, on top of that if you want to support this work in a way that's a little more tangible you can become a supporting partner on Patreon Patreon is the easiest way to support the creatives in your life that are making the content that matters so if this was helpful for you go to patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia and join our cute little supportive community at the crowded table not only are you going to get access to our amazing Discord server where you can connect with other evangelicals and people deconstructing their faith and discovering new practices, but you can also get access to the meditation library. There is month, there is uh, quarterly merch that goes out with your pledge, and it's just a really, really cute time. It's a humble and delicious little slice of the internet. Plus, you get to support this show and all the other content I'm making out there for as little as seven bucks a month. There's just so much value to it. Not to mention you get access to all of the weekly replays for our meditation circles, which happen on Wednesday night. Those are free. You should go sign up for those. Links in the bio. (laughs) But yeah, go sign up, support the show if you love it. Um, And if you like me, you can also follow me across social media at TheKevinGarcia across Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also go to thekevingarcia.com and go pick up my book. It's called Bad Theology Kills. It's available wherever. No, it's not available wherever. It's available online at badtheologykills.com and it ships worldwide. So do not skimp on that if you haven't read it already, okay? It's also available on Audible. So you can pick it up there. 
I think that'll do it for me for this week, friends. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of A Tiny Revolution. This was so delightful and delicious. You are loved more than you know. Till next time, take your meds, call your person, drink some water, take a nap. I know that I'm going to go do that very soon. And uh, I love you. See you soon. Bye-bye.